Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is October 24th of 2013, and tonight our guest is is Rolf Ankerman. He is the author of The Freedom to Recover. It's a book which is uh, it's somewhat critical of the uh, 12 steps to, uh, you know, put it lightly. Uh, we're going to get into that uh, very shortly. First, I want to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Ralph Ankerman, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Ralph? Kenneth, I am doing fine. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much for the opportunity, uh, sharing a little bit about the freedom to recover. Um, I look forward to answering any questions that you might have and uh, shedding some insight onto how it came to be and uh, where I am today and uh, what my intent with the whole thing is. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, the uh, the book is a little bit, is well, it's totally critical of the 12 steps because um, you and I both agree that this is just, as the evidence says, I mean, it's not it's not any better than quitting on your own. There is no evidence that uh, 12-step programs are more effective than doing nothing at all. But uh, tell us a little bit about about your story, about why you became critical of the 12 steps, and just start wherever you please. Okay. Well, what I thought I might do, Ken, is... Uh, um the, uh, the introduction of the book, it's very short and concise, and it, it covers a lot of material. And based from that, uh, you might pick one area that you might want to further explore. So uh, without further ado, I'll just read those two pages, because it really, in a nutshell, kind of uh, tells you what the intent is, why I felt the need to be critical of, of AA, and um, what I think my answer is, which is kind of counterintuitive to, to that take. So uh, here it goes. The Freedom to Recover does not offer a program for sobriety, but rather suggests a complete reversal on how alcohol addiction should both be viewed and addressed. For far too long, alcoholism has been seen as a disease in which those afflicted have absolutely no personal control over their plight. This concept has been both accepted and forwarded by healthcare professionals, the media, the psychiatric community, rehabilitation specialists, the courts, and society as a whole. By far the largest proponent of this stance is taken by the Organization of Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, which emphatically states that those suffering from alcoholism are powerless over their addiction unless they surrender their will and then turn their lives over to a higher power. I propose, as the scores of others that have independently beaten their addictions, that the individual is not powerless, but rather that they in fact have the freedom to turn their lives around. Some people might argue that take such a stand of individual empowerment would be anti-religious or anti-spiritual. I would argue the exact opposite. I believe that mankind's greatest gift is that of free will, the ability and the responsibility to make sound choices. For it's only through this power that we can choose to do the right thing and thus be in harmony with ourselves and the universe, or God, if you will. The success rate for those, as you mentioned, that attempt recovery through AA or any other form for treatment of treatments in that matter is widely debated. Some people put that number at around 5%, while the professionals obviously claim a vastly higher competence level. And I just dropped the book, so hold on, bear with me for one second. Um, hold on. And, um, whatever the actual number is, I believe that a new paradigm is long overdue. 
The book is divided into two parts. Being that Alcoholics Anonymous is most universally accepted as the answer for those suffering the effects of alcoholism, the first part takes a long and necessary hard look at AA's program of recovery and brings into question the very core of its philosophy, debatable logic, and religious leanings. AA's two-part lie of powerlessness and surrender sends the wrong message. That message is that the best that one can hope for is to become a recovering alcoholic who maintains his or her sobriety through their religiously-based 12-step program. Now, can you live a sober life as a member of AA? Well, yes, you can. But this program is merely a bandage in which its members survive one day at a time for eternity. The cost in terms of lost personal freedom and independence is quite simply too high. high, too high. AA members claim that one day at a time living is all about being present and doing what you have to do in order to stay sober just for today. In reality, the AA way demands that you continually relive your sinful past and fear for your future unless you remain a loyal AA sheep and unquestionably follow their guidance. Existing this way is the complete opposite of living in the moment. Besides the requirement of surrendering, AA's 12-step path to recovery is all about creating a sin list, confessing said sins, and then to find atonement by apologizing and trying to make amends by doing the next right thing. That's all fine and dandy, but it has nothing to do with addiction and trying to overcome it. While the organization does possess many attributes that are beneficial, particularly during the beginning stages of sobriety, its insistence that a lifelong association as a participating member is necessary in order for one to achieve lasting sobriety has no basis in fact and actually hinders personal growth. Credit will be given to AA's useful traits, but the emphasis here must be to debunk the myth that leads somebody into living a life in which they depend on AA for their very survival. A healthier and infinitely more satisfying and empowering way to approach life is to embrace the gift of free will, decide to decide, and to chart your own path. Part two will discuss various methods and ways of thinking that will enable you to give your life meaning and purpose. You will discover that an alcohol and drug-free life is not only possible, but enjoyable, rewarding, and totally in your power to attain. You will find no cookie-cutter program with cozy little steps here. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Borrowing from basic psychology, Eastern philosophy, existentialism, life experience, logic, and common sense, I will propose ideas that will enable you to recreate your reality and live a life of unlimited potential. I will ask you to question the questions and to find your own answers. Life is not stagnant, and one needs to embrace change in order to grow and evolve. Hey, if being the master of your own destiny doesn't work for you, there is always AA. But you can and will do it if you want it. You are not powerless, and you don't have to turn your will or your life or your self-will over to anybody or anything. Sobriety is a choice, and the choice is yours alone. Let the journey begin. So there you have it in a nutshell, uh, where, where it begins and where it's going. Okay. You know, I was watching uh, Monica Richardson and uh, Gabrielle Glaser on the Katie Couric uh, the other day. They were on about a month ago. Right, and, and Katie Couric at one point said, well, I don't think we should bash AA. And, you know, I think maybe there are some reasons that we should bash AA. Do you, do you think there are some? Well, I mean, here, again, here's the thing. Uh, when most people get to that point in their dependency, whether that be to alcohol or to drugs, it really doesn't matter. When you get to the point where you're, you're so desperate and, and you finally get to the point where you know change is necessary and you're willing to take that courageous step, because let's face it, to, to face uh, your dependency and your addiction that you've been relying on for coping, a coping mechanism to help ease your suffering and pain, to finally realize that that's what you're trying to do to do those things isn't working anymore and to have the, the guts really to walk into one of those meetings for the first time, it, it's a courageous act. 
And for somebody who's finally willing to take that leap into, into self-discovery and to help themselves, and you're bored with some of the first things that you see when you walk into one of these church basements or Elks Club halls, wherever they, they're holding the meeting, you see that 12-step list staring at you. And the first thing you, says, you see is, we admitted we were powerless. Powerlessness is the last thing that somebody who is trying to help themselves needs to be hearing. They need to hear messages of empowerment, not powerlessness. Leading me not right to step two, um, I mean, made a decision to turn our no, step three rather, where we make our decision to turn our will and our lives over to a higher power, whether that higher power be the organization of AA itself, God or a unicorn, whatever the case may be, again, turning your will and your life over to somebody else, it's, it's not taking responsibility for your own life. It's not empowering yourself. You're, you're handing it over to something else. I mean, it, in a word, and not to, not to be mean, it's, it's faith healing. If you ask God or whether it be AA is your higher power, even though um, in step three, whatever your higher power is, is to turn it to God, as if you read the rest of the steps, that's self-evident. Again, it's the wrong message of surrender. I mean, giving it away, handing the problem to somebody else, let somebody, something else fix me. Again, whether it be AA, God, or a doorknob, um, you're kind of passing the responsibility of fixing uh, the problem to, and, and handing it off to somebody else. And that's the wrong way to go about doing it. You know, this whole thing about, you know, anything can be your higher power, that's, they always tell you that. Um, but you know, I found out that the, I, I found that really that wasn't really true. Um, you know, I, I asked, you know, can the Communist Party be my higher power? And you know, people were very upset with that idea. And you know, it's to me, it's like if you're going to turn your life and will over to an organization, the only organization that AA will accept is AA itself. AA wants to be your god. And it doesn't want the Communist Party to be your God. It doesn't want some group for social change. It doesn't want um, the Church of Scientology to be your God. If I'd said, oh, oh, that's the Church of Scientology is my higher power, I don't think that they, I would have uh, you know, <laughs> had much acceptance with that either. Well, yeah, of course not. And, it, and, and that's, I mean, you can debate what uh, Bill Wilson's intent was way back in the day. Uh, there's scores of books written about the man. And he, I mean, this, he was a troubled man. He had bouts of depression lasting over 10 years. Um, he was a womanizer. So he was the original 13-stepper. Um, he had his epiphany uh, for the 12 steps while he was in the hospital, Towns Hospital, New York City, uh, going through the DTs while he was on a belladonna, which is this hallucinatory herb, um, and uh, God knows what other meds, when he had his vision um, of God in the wind and, uh, and, a, and he saw the light, etc., etc., etc. I mean, he was not a particularly healthy, sound of mind and body human being. Uh, was his intent really to help people way back then, or was it an ego trip? Or I mean, there's so many different schools of thought. But the thing also with AA, I mean, it was written a long time ago. Um, he was no doctor. He was no psychologist. He, he was just a guy who came up with this idea and borrowed some, 
some ideas from the Oxford group, which was a little strange offshoot of uh, uh, Christian offshoot faith, which is very weird and denounced by most of the major religions. Um, he got some of his ideas by reading the varieties of religious experience by William James, which is a very interesting book. Has some good ideas, but that's where he got the surrender to the higher power idea. Uh, I read through 850 pages of that book until I finally found the one page where he got that idea on like page 851, at which point I was ready to shoot myself. But um, the thing with AA, it's so inflexible. It hasn't changed since the 1930s when they wrote, when Bill wrote the big book. Um, God forbid you ever are in an AA meeting and offer any kind of an idea other than something that's written in either the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12 and 12, their other, uh, the, the next book that Bill wrote. Um, if you debate or question anything in those books, you will be quickly silenced by whoever is moderating that particular meeting. So any kind of original thought, or if you were to say, hey, well, I just read this great book uh, by so-and-so well-renowned psychologist that poses the question of this about free will or determining your own uh, destiny, what have you, no, 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 no. we leave outside, uh, uh, outside sources for the outside world. You know, we don't discuss <laughs> these things here. Um, another thing that, I mean, one would say you look at Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a kind of a form of group therapy. But is it really? Because if somebody uh, voices an opinion, raises their hand and does their share, and then he says, okay, thank you very much for your opinion, John. Now, if I raise my hand and say, well, I just wanted to comment on something that John said, they can say, oh, no, 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 no. That is crosstalk, and we can't have that. I mean, isn't that the idea of group therapy, is to bounce ideas off one another, debate, conversation? There is no conversation. They're all just standalone monologues, and you're not allowed to question anything that anybody else says. You just have to sit there and nod, and if you do, and trust me, because I've experimented with this, um, if you start going off on something that's off the, uh, off the, out of the book, if you will, or out of the uh, AA norm, you will be quickly silenced. Thanks for your share, Ralph. We've got lots of people that need to share tonight. Time to move it along. Um, the last time I attended AA, I did so pretty much with the intention of just observing it. And I just, I really was basically making notes, mental notes for the book, The Freedom to Recover was just a, an idea at that point, but it was something I thought that someday I might, I might actually do. Uh, but I kind of went back, it was twofold purpose. Uh, unfortunately, my, uh, my children still believe that AA was the only way. All society does, who can blame them? And, uh, you know, they, I promised them that I would, I would attend for a year and what have you, blah, 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 because they just truly believed that it was the only way. And, and it, it was almost detrimental to the point, the first time I was exposed uh, to Alcoholics Anonymous was uh, probably a little over 10 years ago. It was the direct result of my one and only uh, driving while intoxicated uh, conviction. I mean, God knows I could have been pulled over and arrested for that. <laughs> I don't even want to begin to count how many times. But the point being, I was court ordered to attend AA. And again, for me personally, uh, and I'm grateful for this to a point, uh, the first time I walked in there and I did see those uh, declarations of powerlessness and surrender, something on, call it an intuitive level, said, this is wrong. 
and I never did embrace it. I tried. I tried to uh, fit the uh, the round peg, the square in the round hole, or vice versa. I really tried for the sake of my children, for the sake of my marriage. I tried to make it work. I got a sponsor. I did the steps, but I just never bought in. However, I forced myself to endure and keep going because I wanted peace and harmony in my family. And also, for lack of uh, another reason, I really didn't know of any other alternatives. And, and there were times I thought, what is wrong? There must be something wrong with me that I don't get this. Because everybody, my family, the TV, my uh, psychiatrist who I was forced to see when I had my conviction, uh, and those that I actually went on my own because I was trying to figure out some answers, uh, they all say all paths lead to AA. So there's got to be something wrong with me that I'm not getting this. But again, something intuitively told me there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. There's something very else wrong here. And so I kind of look at it that by myself trying to force myself into that program, which would never work for me because it's wrong on so many levels, I wasted a long time, time that I could have been spent reflecting and going back and trying to figure out, well, when did this start? Why did it start? Why was I drinking back then? Why was I drinking at this point in my life and at this point? Asking myself the questions and trying to come up with the real answers, trying to find the underlying causes to why this all happened. I avoided doing that whole search because I was still trying to fit the square in the round hole. Um, and I think for a lot of people, there are underlying causes why, why one turns to dependency. Granted, there are some people, let's face it, why do people drink initially? Well, because it feels good, obviously. We all like the buzz. Being buzzed feels good. I mean, that's just a fact, mm -hmm. and that's why initially most of us do it. Um, some people do do it almost initially because it helps them forget whatever their troubles are. Whether you started because it was just fun or you already started way back then, um, as some form of coping mechanism or some kind of relief from some kind of pain or mental suffering that you're having, regardless of what end of that spectrum you began your dependency, by the time you get to the end of it, by the time you're at a point where you know it's a huge problem in your life and you're seeking help, by that time, I don't care why you started, by the time you get to that level, there are certainly issues in your life. I mean, there's just, I mean, 99% of the time there are. I mean, otherwise, why would you be seeking answers to it? So, um, again, it's, to me, it's, it's just not the answer. Um, you're, becoming, you're replacing one dependency with another. I mean, the idea of recovery to me, Ken, is to become recovered. Uh, mm -hmm. Shortly after I uh, published The Freedom to Recover, uh, you know, it was uh, self-published, so it's all word of mouth. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's time-consuming. I don't have... Uh, front page, uh, full page ads in the New York Times like Stephen King or uh, you know, James Patterson have. It's, uh, I had to get the word out slowly, but slowly it did, and uh, a few reviews started coming in on the book. And one of the reviews that I'm most thankful for was by the person who was most critical of the book. Uh, and this person was obviously um, a lifelong member of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the right of review, he says something along the lines, he goes, well, I've been a recovering alcoholic for 35 years. And let's just stop and think about that for a moment. I've been a recovering alcoholic for 35 years, one day at a time. Isn't there something wrong with that statement? 
I mean, shouldn't recovery be about becoming recovered mm-hmm. and then moving on with your life? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, why do you, and, and that's one of the other things that I have a severe problem with AA. So much of it is about going in there and rehashing and reliving, you know, the errors and the past misdeeds that you've done. And that some people will pose the argument and say, well, I go because I need to be reminded of where I came from. Really? Let's see. When after I, shortly after I decided to put the bottle down, I came home to my now empty apartment besides my little furry cat that I adopted because I went from a house that had three children, two dogs, and two cats to a lonely apartment with me, myself, and I. Uh, and then I went out and got my little furry friend. Um, I, it doesn't take much to remind myself of where that whole thing led me. It's pretty easy. I remember the fact that I no longer have a wife and that my children no longer love and respect me. Thank God, mercifully, um, I've earned that respect and love from two out of my three children. Number three is uh, it's a work in process, but you know, that's, that's another story for another time. But at that point being, I mean, I don't need to go to a meeting every day to remind myself of where my dependency got me. I remember the pink slip I got from that job because they warned me. They said, hey, look, one of our customers smelled alcohol in your breath. We can't have that. Happens again. We're going to have to let you go. Well, it happened again, and guess what? They let me go. Um, It doesn't take much for me to remember these things. I haven't been to an AA meeting in four years, and I still remember these things very clearly. I don't need to go to a meeting every day to be reminded of these things. so that's just a ridiculous uh, reason and excuse for having to go to remind yourself of where you've been and where it can lead. I mean, unless you destroy that many brain cells that you have absolutely no memory left whatsoever, that's not a viable reason. Another problem I have is the fact that you um, have to declare yourself as an alcoholic or an addict every time you raise your hand to speak. I found that also from the very t- first time I sat room in the halls. That was extraordinarily demeaning. Before the meeting even started, they went around the room. Everyone introduced themselves. Hi, Ralph, re- alcoholic. Hi, Kenneth, recovering and grateful alcoholic, blah, 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 blah. Yet, here's this guy, Joey, who's been in recovery for 35 years, hasn't had a drink in 35 years, and he still raises his hand and says, Hi, I'm Joey, and I'm an alcoholic. I don't drink anymore, Ken. I haven't had a drink in over three and a half years. I do not consider myself an alcoholic any longer. Do I have the potential to once again become an alcoholic? You betcha. But does that mean I am an alcoholic? As I speak to you right now, Ken, I am not an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in three and a half years. I have no desire for one. If I were to go pick up a bottle of vodka tomorrow and start drinking like a fish again and going off on a bender, and three weeks from now and still buying that bottle of vodka every day, have I slipped back into dependency, back into alcoholism? You betcha. But today, as I speak to you, no, I am not an alcoholic, and don't you dare call me one. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just wrong. Well, you know, when, uh, you know, when people quit smoking cigarettes, you know, they don't say, I've been a recovering smoker for the last 35 years, or they don't go around the room. Not many people go to Nicotine Anonymous and say, hi, I'm a smoker, when you haven't smoked for years. You say, I'm an ex-smoker. You right. can be an ex-drinker. For example, I mean, here's, okay, if you want to go on, we'll explore this concept a little bit too. Um, my fiance, uh, love my life, she is a two-time cancer survivor, okay? Does she have cancer right now? No, she does not. 
So don't go say, oh, that's poor Jill. She has cancer. No, she doesn't. She somehow, she overcame it. She beat it. Thank God. Uh, right now she is cancer-free. Now, because she's had cancer twice and they radiated the hell out of her body for over a year, I mean, um, the damage caused to her body uh, is irreversible. Uh, her pituitary gland doesn't work anymore. She can go from... Uh, a ridiculously high blood pressure that's on the verge of giving her a heart attack to such low blood pressure where she passes out and she's fallen down flights of stairs and broken her back. I mean, this poor kid is a mess and will will battle health issues for the rest of her life as a result. But does she have cancer right now? No, she does not. Um, you know, it, it's not there. If you don't have it anymore, then you're not it. It, it doesn't have a hold on you. But, and, but that also goes to the whole thing where I don't buy the whole disease theory of it either. Diseases happen to you. Um, alcoholism uh, or cocaine addiction, whatever, you allow it to happen to you. Um, the bottle of vodka doesn't have arms and legs. It doesn't walk over to you, lift itself up, and pour itself down your throat. You do that. So the alcohol itself, is, it's not a disease. I mean, you create the dependency. Is it a dependency? Absolutely. Is it a disease? No, it's not. Name one other disease, just one, that you can arrest immediately by making a choice. And that's all it is. It's a choice. Back in July 4th, uh, 2010, thank you, July 4th, 2010, and I made the choice to make that choice two days prior, but I knew that was going to be my last drink. That night, I knew I was going to lift that glass when I lived for the last time. I made a choice. Okay? I'm sorry, you can't just choose a disease away. I'm sure Michael J. Fox would love to uh, choose to not have Parkinson's anymore. Um, I, I'm sure people that do have leukemia would just love to be able to choose to not have leukemia anymore. Guess what? If you're drinking alcohol, you can choose that very precise moment that I'm done with it. It's a mm -hmm. choice. It's not a disease. And until that's, that's one thing that uh, society is going to have to come to grips with. I mean, I think Stanton Peel wrote a book, The Diseasing of America, which I've yet to read, but I, I wrote a blog. Not having known he wrote that book, The Diseasing of America, it was actually the title of my, my little article. I sent out a press release promoting the book. Um, maybe I heard of it subliminally. But anyway, the point being, so many things in today's society we blame on, oh, it's an addiction, it's a disease, I'm helpless over it. It's, you know, people blame so many things. Well, um, you know, he couldn't help raping that girl. He's a sex addict. I mean, you can blame almost any bad, poor behavior in this day and age on some kind of addiction when it really comes down to making bad choices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the weird thing about the whole disease model, the whole thing, is this hijacked brain thing. And the, well, it's the whole powerless thing. It's the whole thing that it is impossible for you to change your behavior, which is not true. It is work. It takes effort to change your behavior. Um, you know, making effort, doing work is not popular in the U.S. today. Everybody wants a quick fix. So, you know, if it requires effort, that means, oh, it's impossible. But it's not impossible. You know, quitting drinking or quitting is a bad habit. You know, I quit uh, two addictions completely through abstinence, and one was cigarettes, and I was a heavy-duty smoker, and the other was television. And my answer to both of those was, stop completely. It's, it's the best for you. For alcohol, I decided to severely reduce the consumption to make it once a week, and that's it. Um, 
and those work those worked out for me. But you know, those were all a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, anything worth pursuing and worth doing in life is it usually does require effort. I mean, you're right. I mean, we live in a society of um, entitlement, and so, you know, I deserve it, and uh, you know, why should I have to work for it? Well, you know, life isn't that way. Life doesn't owe you anything. Um, it's nice if, if if life does give you nice things. Uh, that's fantastic. And uh, yeah, I mean, one thing that AA stresses is the attitude of gratitude, and I and I believe in being grateful for good things in your life. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, a lot of times, that like, you create those good things that happen in your life. Um, yeah, it's like that expression, Ken. Everything happens for a reason. I don't particularly care for that expression. You know, because sometimes you are the reason that it happened. You know, my daughter got an A on her biology test, not just because it happened for a reason. It happened because she studied her ass off. She was the reason she got that 98 on her test. Sometimes you are the reason things happen. Do things just happen in life? Sure. Somebody walking across the street gets hit by a bus. That's a freak accident. It happens. Sometimes things just happen. I mean, the reason was because the bus was going down that lane and you walked out in the middle of the street at that moment. So, yep, that was the reason it happened. You didn't make it happen. Well, you did by walking in the street, I suppose. But, I mean, for a lot of times, things don't just happen. A lot of times, you are the cause of what happens. It's kind of that predeterminist fatalistic view that whatever is going to be is going to be whatever happens is going to happen and I have no role in it. I mean, that's such a fatalistic view. I mean, you could take that view. I much rather would like to view life as that I have some say in what the outcome of it is going to be. I mean, granted, if you were to take a time machine and travel 200 years into the future, you could take a snapshot and now look back at Kenneth Anderson's life and say, well, see, what happened in the year 2017? Uh, you know, Ken, uh, whatever, uh, lost, his, lost this, lost that, and this is how it happened. And see, and that's what happened. It, it happened. You can see it here right in the timeline of history. It happened. It was predestined to happen because it did happen. Well, you know, maybe things that Ken did in his life leading up to that moment had something to do with that moment happening. Um, so I just don't buy it. I mean, we do influence the outcome of what happens in our world. To think otherwise or to act otherwise, then why bother? Then, yeah, you might as well have another drink or snort another wine because none of it makes any difference anyway. But I don't believe that. That's no way to live your life. Again, it's a choice. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it gets into a really you – can, you can go into the philosophical thing of free will if you want to pursue that, and that gets – more messy, but you don't even have to go that far. Um, I know Jeff Shaler made this point a long time ago in his book, Addiction is a Choice. So there's a difference between voluntary muscles and involuntary muscles. There's a difference between a voluntary action and an involuntary action. When the doctor hits your knee with the hammer and your knee jerks up, that's an involuntary action. When you move your leg to walk across the street, that's a voluntary action. And all biologists recognize that those are different. Right. No, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, so I, I recently read a book, and I, I, I should have wrote a little note for it uh, to, to give them the credit for it. I have it somewhere. But um, it's called Think Slowly, Think Think Quickly, Thinking Slowly, Thinking Quickly, Think Slow, Think Fast, something along those lines. And basically the premise of the book is that there are basically, I mean, there's kind of two different um, parts or two-way modes of thinking that 
that we have as human beings. One is that he calls it the A brain, which is your instinctual survival mode brain where not much a hell of a lot of thought goes into it. It's your primal, um, I guess rational recovery would call it uh, the, the, the animal or the beast or what have you. Um, it's your instinctual brain, the one that, uh, that gives you fight or flight response. It's the one that's looking for uh, relief from suffering and pain. It's the one that goes for the easy fix, the instant gratification. And uh, I believe, I mean, that's the part of the brain that says, hey, if I take this drug right now, I, I don't have to deal with the stress or deal with the emotional pain from my past trauma, blah, 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 quick fix, make it go away. Then we have the logical brain that thinks things through and also considers what the future ramifications of any said action is. The one that says, yeah, um, I could drink this bottle of vodka and I'll forget about the fact that uh, my wife hates me and just threw me out of the house or that I just dragged my job away or that, uh, you know, that I was raped when I was 12 years old and I just uh, I can't think and deal with it and face that, so I'm just going to block that all out by drinking this bottle of vodka because my uh, A brain says, oh, that's going to make it, you feel better, it's going to reduce the pain and suffering and make it go away. Whereas the B logical brain is going to say, yeah, but will it have changed anything uh, six hours later when you've got the pounding headache and can't get up and go to work or you smell like a vodka factory and you're supposed to take your kid to soccer practice or what have you. Um, so I mean, part of the trick of the whole deal of recovery is learning how, to, learning how to listen to that voice of the bee brain, the one that thinks things through. And in the freedom to recover, I kind of call that voice that sits through those opposing viewpoints, I call it the arbitrator. We have an arbitrator in our brain. And you have the competing uh, voices in there. You've got that instinctual brain, who I call the prosecutor, who wants you just to take the easy way out, and that's going to make you feel lousy and stupid and less than and all that or what have you. And then you've got you know, the rational brain that says, let's think this through. What are the ramifications? What are we doing here? And then you've got the arbitrator guy who sits there and kind of has to sift between those. So, by the way, you have to, you have to empower that, that B guy so that that A guy doesn't just override him on auto-response, if you will. And that's where a lot of times when people grab for that drink or that line or that, that needle or whatever, it's autopilot. There's not much thought behind it. It's just, boom, you know, boom, that plunge is going to give you instant relief, instant karma. You know, it's, uh, it's chasing the dragon. I'm sure you, you know, mm-hmm. well know the term well. It's, it's getting that, that, instant, that relief. But no sooner do you have that relief then you need to seek it out again. It's fleeting. Um, so you're just constantly in, in chasing that, chasing your tail, um, chasing the dragon, chasing your tail to get that sense of calm and relief and all your troubles away. It's, it's, there's not much thought to it. You're not thinking about future ramifications. You don't really care. You just want to feel better now. But we all know, of course, at the end of the day that you're going to feel worse. So, I mean, it's... Again, they're choices, and, and a lot of it has to do, and, and you've heard the term, I know uh, Dr. Peel has used the term maturing, maturing out, if you mm-hmm. will. I mean, it's learning to grow up and take responsibility for your world and, uh, and realizing that there are, your, your actions do have ramifications. Uh, you know, some people say that when they get into that addictive mode, and if, you, you know, if you're a hermit and you live in your own isolated world and have absolutely no contact with the outside world and somehow you, have a, you inherited enough money to somehow eke out uh, survival in a little room somewhere, and you can say, honestly, I'm not hurting anybody but yourself, maybe if that, that's the case, maybe so. 
Uh, but most people don't live in a bubble. Most people do live in a world that's surrounded by other people with responsibilities. And uh, when you get to that point of um, addictive behavior, dependent behavior, uh, I got news for you, you are hurting other people other than yourself. If, if for no other reason, you're certainly not living up to your potential as a human being and what you could possibly contribute to the world. I mean, if all you're doing is self-medicating to stop feeling pain when you have the potential to be, I don't know, a poet, a writer, a, a volunteer, a good husband, a good son, or, or whatever, a human being that's part of the, of the living, breathing world, uh, you know, you are causing harm. Those people say cause no harm. Well, for the most part, chances are somewhere and someone, somewhere, you're, you're hurting somebody other than yourself. But uh, but even if that, if you don't care about anybody else, which is very selfish, and of course addiction can be selfish, uh, you, you certainly are causing yourself harm. I mean, the world has so much to offer. Life has so much to offer. I mean, it's no stretch, Ken, when I say that. From that time that I put that bottle down on July 4, 2010, that my life in the last three and a half years has been unparalleled to anything that happened in the 50 years before it, close to 50 years, 40, almost 49 years before it, other than perhaps the birth of my three children. Outside of that, I mean, my life has been phenomenal. Um, I've rediscovered lost passions. I mean, I had a lot of potential, but I started drinking and drugging at a very young, tender age of 12, 13. Uh, I was told I had extraordinary athletic talents, which I never pursued. Um, I had musical abilities, which I never pursued. I mean, it all, I mean, uh, very quickly, it all became just a pursuit of catching the buzz and hanging out with the burnouts. And in the last three years, I've picked up my music again. I'm writing music. I'm, uh, I'm 20 times the guitar player I was when I was 20 years old. Um, I'm five times the tennis player I was when I was 20 years old. I mean, uh, I've discovered new things I enjoy. When I first got sober, I live, on, I live on the water. I live in the North Shore of Long Island, right outside New York. Uh, I went and bought a $300 kayak, which I've probably now used 500 hours. I certainly got my money out of that. and uh, I didn't know anything about kayaking. I just saw it in Dick's Sporting Goods and said, hmm, that looks like fun. I got one and just started trying it out. I met other people kayaking in the water and you know, started rejoining the world, doing things that are fun, uh, exploring different ideas. Uh, mm -hmm. There's just so much more to life than uh, reliving the past and dwelling on the past. And, uh, and to be recovered means just that, Ken, to be recovered, to put that, uh, that, that sad chapter of your life you know, in the past. You can't deny it. It is what it is. It was what it was. And I don't, you know, I don't try to, to cover it. And, um, you know, I know there are things I did that was less than fantastic. I certainly was not the father I should have been at that time. But the only way uh, I, I can make that up to my children, for example, is by being the person I am today and going forward trying to be an even better person by showing through my example of how I live my life today that I'm a much better person rather than, you know, uh, I was a failure, I was a loser, I'm a horrible person, I'm not worthy. Well, how are things ever going to get better that way? Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. You know? And the other thing, you know, um, even if uh, you're, you, you're drinking, your drug use, whatever your addiction is, you know, even if you're careful that you don't cause harm to anybody else, what happens when you use 
every single day, all the time, um, you stop getting, you stop feeling good from it. You know, you get to this point where you're just drinking to feel normal and you wake up and you feel like shit and then you drink to feel normal and you don't even reach a state of being normal. And, you know, this is what happens when you're using addictively. So it is just not, it is not fun to stay pickled all the time. Right, it stops working. It stopped working a long time ago. Yeah. Right, no, I, I mean, absolutely. Like I said, I mean, at one time or another, you know, you did it because it felt good. It made you feel social. It made you feel all warm and fuzzy. And, you know, and again, for those people out there that can drink socially when the time is appropriate and don't go to extremes, there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it has taken over your life, where it is the predominant overriding everything to your world, and everything else is taking a back seat, if there is even a seat left for them to occupy, well, then it's not working anymore. Um, and I, I know uh, you folks at Home Reduction totally believe that. A lot of people can go back to moderate drinking. I totally believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there are people that you know, might have gotten through a rough stretch in their life, whether it was the end of a relationship, the loss of a loved one, uh, economic struggles, loss of a job, these types of things can get you stressed and depressed and you might turn to some kind of form of uh, dependency, whether it be alcohol, drugs, or gambling, or whatever it might be, uh, to, to give you, again, relief from the pain and suffering that you're experiencing. Once those underlying those situations, if you will, straighten themselves out, let's say, for example, you are chronically unemployed, now you land a job, you're happy, you feel fulfilled, all of a sudden that stress-causing thing that was driving you towards a dependency is now lifted, then all of a sudden you no longer find yourself needing to be dependent on something, and all of a sudden it's not a crux, it's not something just to, to find oblivion. Now all of a sudden you realize, hey, well, my life is good again, and I, I, I can have a social drink or two. So I think for people, and it's particularly for people who were using, um, let's say, uh, had a dependent issue, dependency issue for not overly long period of time, let's say for a couple months or a year or two maybe, I think those people very well possibly might be able to go to moderation again. Someone like myself, we started drinking for various reasons, and those reasons changed over the decades, but... When you're talking 30, 40 years of abusing a substance, I think for people like that, like myself, to go back to drinking moderately might be a pretty tough nut. And that's not even to say, Ken, that I couldn't do it. But at this point, I enjoy my life so much without it, even if there was only a 2% chance that if I were to, let's say, uh, at the next uh, holiday, decide to drink and have a few social drinks, uh, just to test the waters, even if there's just a two percent chance that it would lead me back to where I was, that that's it's the the, the risk is too high as far as I'm concerned because I am living a life unparalleled to anything I've ever experienced before. I don't need it to feel well uh, or to have fun. I'm, I'm a pretty funny guy. I, uh, I enjoy my life. I'm outgoing, um, uh, so I don't I don't feel feel the need for it. So I think people who were dependent for really long stretches. To a real extreme level, for them, moderation may not be such a good idea. But again, for a lot of people, I think it's completely doable. Again, each, you know, everyone's circumstance is unique, and you have to weigh that, and you have to weigh whether that, you know, whether it's worth trying to go that route or not. 
Mm-hmm. You have to make that call mm-hmm. for yourself. And, uh, you know, I've been, and, and you know, there's a very good possibility that I might be able to. A perfect example, uh, just a little over three weeks ago, I had a triple hernia surgery, which was not a heck of a lot of fun. And needless to say, when you come out of that, you're in a fairly significant amount of pain. Um, so, of course, they prescribed um, a narcotic painkiller. And I thought to myself, well, hmm, here's a pretty good test. Uh, because in the past, uh, young, at different various times of my life, I had uh, ACL surgery on my knee. I broke my leg pretty badly twice. And when I was giving pain medications at those particular times in my life, I was basically a, a dependent person on alcohol and everything else already. But uh, I did not take my medication as prescribed. I said, well, if they say take one every three hours, I bet if I take three in one hour and chase out with a scotch on the rocks, I'm going to get me a pretty good buzz, and I sure did. Um, I also had periods in my life, two summers in particular, where I had quite the love affair with cocaine, and I don't even want to consider how many thousands of dollars I plowed through in a very short period of time. Um, so that dependency there is there. So when I recently had this surgery, I thought to myself, well, here are the pain meds. Can I take these things as prescribed, as prescribed for the purpose for which they were intended? And the good news was that I was able to do just that. Uh, mm-hmm. I took them for a week, went uh, for my follow-up visit, then I was all out of them. And the first thing just about, my surgeon said, how's the pain? I said, hurts like hell. She said, uh-huh. Um, do you need more pain meds? I looked at it and said, nah, I think I'm good. We'll do the asshole route. And it still hurts now. It's still over three weeks. It still hurts quite a bit. But um, and I could have gotten more pain meds. I'm pretty sure I would take those prescribed, but I just didn't feel the need to. I, I I'll suck it up a little bit. But so the fact of the matter was you, you do mature and you, you can alter how you approach things. Again, with alcohol, I think it was for such a long time. Um, that for me, it's not a good idea. But the bottom line is that some people can. Mm-hmm. Like I said, now somebody in my situation having just had the surgery, if they were, let's say, a heroin addict or a morphine addict or an oxycontin addict, the idea of then taking pain meds after surgery, I can see that as being a bit more daunting and something they might think twice about. But again, everyone's situation is unique, Kent. Mm-hmm. Well, our point of view at HAMS is always to talk to people about choosing the solution that is best for you as an individual. And, you know, the research shows about half of people with alcohol dependence will choose abstinence as their best solution. Uh, uh, half the people that recover, and half the people that recover will choose cutting back. I mean, that's in the, the big NISARC study that they did, the National Epidemiological Survey of Alcohol-Related Conditions, to do the whole acronym. Um, so we totally recognize that abstinence is uh, going to be the best choice for a lot of people. And, you know, we never say to people, you can't drink. <clears throat> I also thought that was a really bizarre statement. Of course you can. If you have $10 in your pockets, you can get a bottle of rock gut, vodka, and you can, of course you can. Right. Do, you, do you want to? Is it your best solution? Right. Is, is, this it a good choice? is it a good choice for you personally? Right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of people will say, no, I'm done with that. Some people will, might say, well, I like to get intoxicated safely once in a while. This is actually my solution. Once a week, get intoxicated safely and then don't touch it for the other six days of the week. And, you know, some other people say, you know, I don't want to get intoxicated at all anymore. I want to, if I drink, do moderation and otherwise not drink. And, you know, we recognize 
all those different possibilities are solutions. And, you know, if somebody is getting drunk every day right now and they come to us and say, you know, um, I decided I wanted to stop drinking and driving, but I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to change my drinking, but I'm going to stop drinking and driving. We'll say, well, that's a good idea because that is harm reduction. Right, absolutely. It is. <laughs> I mean, so I never understand how, like, you know, these ridiculously famous athletes who get paid $10 million a year, they get in their Lamborghini for in the morning and rack it around a tree. It's like, oh, well, get your freaking chauffeur to freaking drive you home for crying out loud. What the hell? <laughs> you know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I mean, that's called being responsible. Yeah, I mean, if that's your choice, is, hey, I want to continue being a drug abuser, well, that is your choice, absolutely. But, again, that's where uh, cause no harm, as as you would say. Um Again, if you're not causing anybody else harm uh, in your life, in your family or whatever, and you're pretty much on your own and you, you beat to your own drum, that's fine. But don't take anybody else out with you, for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, if, I mean, if you're at that point where right now the only steps you can take is to be safer, to use clean needles, or to, you know, call a taxi, not drive anymore when you're wasted, well, those are all good steps. And if that's where you're at right now, those are good things to do. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, again, and it really comes to, again, it's, you know, everything in life, uh, as as we both agree, everything in life is all about making choices. Um, Yeah, I I love the song from from Rush, Free Will. I mean, it's like, if you decide not to decide, you still have made a choice. I mean, you can't avoid it. I mean, (laughs) you're choosing, you're making choices and charting your path at, at every given moment. Uh, you can deny it all you want, but even by choosing to do nothing, you're still choosing to do. You're choosing to do nothing. It's still a choice. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, understand by. I mean, you can't run away from that reality. So at least you know, be a big boy, be a grown up, and realize that that, that your choices have implications and that they do matter, and that they there are results that are a result of the choices that you make. Um, and it's not you're not this helpless poor little old me. Uh, it happened to me again. Like I said, cancer happens to people. Addiction you allow to happen to yourself. And I'm not saying it's not understandable. People go through, like I said, hard times, rough life, trauma, abuse, and all these things are valid reasons why somebody would fall into a dependency. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, there were very good reasons why I started way back when I did, which I, we don't have the time for here. But I went back and I analyzed the who's, why's, what's, where's, and when's, and how's. Um, but that did not take away my responsibility for having made the decisions on how I dealt with those issues. At the end of the day, I chose the path that I chose. And finally, I chose the path on which I am now. Uh, it was a decision back then. It was a decision 10 years into it. It was a decision 25 years into it. And three and a half years ago, the decision to, to stop the insanity and the madness was also a decision then. Everything, and along the way, you make decisions all the time. Um, so, I mean, yeah, why people become dependent, it, it's, again, there are all kinds of different reasons for it. Um, but, I mean, yeah, you have to, yeah, you really have to analyze it. Things don't just happen to you. Things happen, sure, again, Everything happens for a reason. Well, again, a lot of times you are the reason. Yep, and then bad, unfortunate things do just happen to us. Uh, and then, but then you have to analyze, what can I do about it? What are my choices? Choice A, uh, you know, like you said, medicate and, and just blot out life and, and hide from it. Or 
you know, you have to face the pain to get through it and learn how and learn how to move on. And it's not an easy process. It's hard. I mean, like, for example, you know, the folks and I talk to people who you know, have been in AA for like 20 years or 25 years, and they finally understand that, you know, it, what it is for what it is, and now they want to leave. It's hard to leave because it's become their entire life. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. All their friends are in recovery. I'm like, you ask them, did you have any friends that are not in recovery? And for the most part, the answer is no. Um, and that's sad. I mean, it, it, be, it has become their whole world. So that to make you know, a decision uh, at that point, it's kind of a change of subject here, back to the A thing, but um, to, to make the, the decision to rejoin the world um, you know, as a recovered person, it, it's hard when your whole world has been recovery for X, Y, Z amount of years, trying to make new friends. Uh, you, when you know, four nights a week, you go sit at the meetings, and uh, it's not only uh, it's not only your philosophy, it's your social life, it's your everything. But I mean, honestly, I mean, to me, isn't there more to life than listening to people's stories of the horrible things that they did back then, and um, you know, and declaring yourself as an alcoholic when you haven't had a drink for 20 years, and just doing this day in and day out again, you know, repeat and repeat. It's I don't know. To me, it's not very fulfilling. It's not very authentic. It's not a hell of a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people. The reason that they go to AA is because they want something outside themselves to fix them. They do not want to make the effort to change themselves. And they say, oh, I can go to AA and it will fix me and I don't have to make an effort. And they don't realize that they are jumping into a lifetime of effort. They're going to have to be going to meetings, you know, like every day for the rest of their goddamn life. It's more work to go to AA than it is to be a drunk. And being a much. It, and it's, it's another dependency because, again, you have to go. Um, if you go, jails, institutions, and death await you if you ever leave. Um, so, is, yeah, I mean, you, you are guilted into going, and if you don't go, um, well, I mean, you're screwed. Um, and again, step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves would return us to sanity. So you're calling me insane, and you're saying that it's got to be something outside of myself that's going to fix me, as opposed to fix yourself. Um, yeah, and again, like I said, the first three steps are just oh so wrong. We are powerless. We admit we're powerless. No, you're not powerless. You just have to make a decision. I, mm-hmm. I decide. I'm done here. Stop. Stop already. I mean, so no, step one, wrong. Yeah, I mean, do you have to admit to yourself that it has become a problem that you need to address? Sure, but are you powerless to do that? No. Uh, again, came to, uh, you know, came to conclude that a power greater than ourselves is necessary to return us back to sanity. No, the power is within yourself. Made mm-hmm. a decision to turn our will and our lives over to somebody or something else to fix me. Again, it's taking the responsibility and... Everything else, taking it away from yourself and handing it in somebody else's lap. And the best, unfortunately, that AA can do, like I said in the floor of the book, can you live sober in AA? Yeah, sure you can. One day at a time for eternity. It's a Band-Aid. I mean, it's, it, that's all it is. It's a Band-Aid. You have to put it on every day. The, the wound never heals. I mean, the goal of recovery should be to become recovered, not to be in a state of recovery, recovering, for the rest of your life. 
I mean, that's why, you know, I, I believe most people can, and most people do, because it's been proven in, in the studies and surveys, most people do overcome their dependencies and addictions all on their own. Okay, mm-hmm. some people need some help, uh, so you have the therapy route, or and you have uh, the group support route. And up to the longest time, some people need that kumbaya, pat on the back, uh, group love, hug thing. Um, and and uh, I guess you know, from when you first make that decision to quit, I think that could be helpful for a short period of time. It shouldn't be something you become dependent on for any length of time. When you first stop and you have nowhere to go and you don't know what to do, you don't want to hang out with your friends at the bar, it's a place to go where other people are you know, kind of sifting through the same kind of stuff. I get that. And there, there is value in, in that group support, in that group love, in that group hug. There is. There, there clearly is. But, I mean, thank God there, in the meantime there have other organizations have sprung up that offer you that group support, but that offer you logical, cognitive, behavioral solutions to your problem. Uh, take smart recovery, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Smart recovery, I mean, it's the same idea of group support, group-based support, but it's based on science, on logic, on cognitive behavioral changes, on a lot of the things I've been talking about since uh, we began this conversation. Um, unfortunately, SMART is still relatively small, and uh, to a lot of people say, well, there are no SMART meetings where I live. And that's true, but they do have an online presence. They have meetings online that you can go. Is it the same as in person? Maybe not, but, um, yeah, but it, 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 there are other options out there. And in this day and age, you know, with you know, support groups online everywhere, uh, you don't have to sit wallowing your misery by yourself. There are places to reach out. Um, mm-hmm. And I say, again, they're based on, you know, on logic, common sense, growing. And one thing you know, that I like about the, uh, the smart organization is they, they, they clearly state in their handbook, for example, that uh, using is a choice. Um, and they also write in one of their first pages, declare that a lifelong association is not necessary. You know, mm-hmm, you get mm-hmm. well, you move on mm-hmm. if you so choose. If you like it, you hang out, whatever. But it's certainly uh, if you leave, you leave because you got well, not uh, you're going to end up dead. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's time uh, for a new paradigm. It's time for a new view on it. Um, recovering for eternity is not recovery. Recovery is recovery. You're recovered. Yeah, yeah. I also like smart, and in fact, you know, quite a number of people that come through hams, I'd say about a quarter, eventually they opt to quit completely, and I say, you know, you can continue to be associated with hams, but if you want some additional abstinence-based support, you probably find smart very compatible, because we use the same type of cognitive behavioral principles that they do, and so a lot of people, you know, they they decide to quit drinking completely, they still hang out at hams, they go to Smart, they hang out to the online or live meetings there too, and they find it very compatible. Well, you know, I'm going to have to let you go because speaking of that, I have to start our online chat just uh, in about one minute now at 9 o'clock. But I want uh-huh. to well, I, you don't want people going online and not having anybody to be there for them, so by all <laughs> means. Uh, Ken, I want to thank you for the opportunity. Um, it was uh, truly a, a nice conversation, and uh, it's, it's actually the first time I've had a chance to be on a public forum. Uh, again, as I mentioned, uh, you know, the book is only eight, nine months old, 
self-published, so uh, you know, it's a slow process getting the word out. But uh, I'll just leave you with the thought that you know, uh, I'm rewarded when I get emails from folks who have read the book and said, wow, you've really helped me look at this whole thing from a different perspective. You've helped, helped me change my life for the better, and thank you. And that's what it's all about. That's, that's why you're doing what you're doing. That's why I did what I did. Uh, maybe somebody doesn't have to wait a half a century before they get it or suffer 10 years in a program that's not going to ever work for them. There are options. There are choices. We all have choices. And uh, it's about making the right ones for ourselves. Okay, the book is called Freedom to Recover. Thanks. It is and called The Freedom to Recover. Uh, again, it's Rolf Anchorman, and you can look up details on the book. I have a blog, which I faithfully add to usually at least once or twice a week. And you can find details on the book at Easy Enough Website to Remember. It's the title of the book. It's simply www.thefreedomtorecover.com. Uh, also available in paperback form or as an ebook uh, by at both Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, not in retail stores as of yet, but uh, you can find it on Amazon or Kindle. Uh, you can find the you know, the links and the information for that on my website as well. Okay, thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you next time.